Our gospel reading for this morning comes to us from St. Mark, the eighth chapter. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him, to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him Will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in glory, in the glory of His Father with the holy angels? This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please join me in a word of prayer. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. Amen. And how do we get here? I mean, I probably guess how you got here, but talking in our gospel reading today, how did we get here? I mean, it's one of those crazy and wild rides of a gospel. It's one that is filled of how do we get from Peter saying, Jesus, you are the Christ, to Peter now taking Jesus aside and beginning to say, Jesus, I will not let this happen to you to then suddenly Jesus turning to Peter and saying, get behind me, Satan. I mean, it is a wild ride of that very highest of heights as Peter confesses and says exactly what they all have come to know. But it is that lowest of lows as they begin to descend into that valley of uncertainty and concern and worry and fear of all that Jesus has to say. I mean, it's a jarring up and down. I mean, it's one of those things, Peter takes us always on a wild ride. It's like that Allstate commercial. You don't want to ride with Peter. <laughs> the fact is, in the midst of this, Peter finds himself up, he finds himself down, and Peter even finds himself in very unfamiliar territory for him, because at the end, he is simply silenced and has nothing to say. That how did we 
get here. See, Jesus, in the midst of this journey, in the midst of this walk, in the midst of His very path there to Jerusalem of everything that was there, Peter thought he knew where things were going. Peter thought he knew. Peter already had dancing in his head all of those very promises of what it means to be a part of that entourage of the Christ of the promised Messiah, of what it meant for one to be this promised one, this one that would be welcomed is certainly that when we go to that holy city of Jerusalem, I know the gates are going to part, the parades are going to start, is that it is all going to be great. And when you are that right-hand man of the person who is in charge of the parade, oh, it's going to be grand. Peter had dreams of much more than sugar plums dancing in his head. Is that he had those very dreams of glory and honor, power and might. Peter had those very dreams there. Peter may have given the right answer, but Peter did not have the right content. Peter may have said that, Jesus, you are the Christ, but Peter did not know of what it meant to be the Christ, of what it was that Christ had come to do. That as Jesus begins to unpack and unfold and allow them to see of exactly what it meant to be this Messiah, this one who would suffer, this one who would die, this one who would go through pain and sorrow and shame and all sorts of problems, all for the sake of us, that we may be forgiven, that we may be loved, that we may be welcomed. Peter couldn't comprehend of what it would cost his Lord Jesus to make us his own. See, a number of years ago, there was a missionary down in Brazil that as that missionary found himself out exploring the town and out in one of those open-air open markets, checking out all of the shops and all of the wares and everything that was there, is that he found himself stumbling upon one that he saw crosses galore just found throughout. And right above that very shop had the biggest sign that proclaimed cheap crosses. <laughs> Cheap crosses. That isn't that what many are looking for? Cheap crosses. Crosses that don't cost a lot. Crosses that don't require a lot. Crosses that are comfortable, crosses that are easy, crosses that simply are those that won't demand much of me. But that missionary is said to have said that why, my Lord's cross was not cheap, so why should mine be? See, there was another Christian author who thought much about this idea is that as he began to think about this whole idea 
of cheap grace and cheap crosses is that this is what he had to say. Is that Christianity without discipleship is Christianity without the living Christ. That cheap grace amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. No, cheap grace is that grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is that preaching of forgiveness without repentance, of baptism without church discipline, of communion without confession, without, with absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without Christ, grace without cross. But costly grace is that treasure hidden in the field for the sake of what someone will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's that pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all that he has and all of his goods to make it his own. The costly grace is that call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave their nets and follow Him. Costly grace is that gospel which must be sought again and again, that gift that must be asked for, that door on which one must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it uh, costs that very life of our Lord. It is costly because it condemns sin, but it is grace because it justifies the sinner. That above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. For you were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. I mean, those are some pretty strong words, are they not? But I mean, it's one thing writing pretty strongly about that cost of discipleship and what it is that is there, but isn't it very different something that it costs when it comes to living it out? So the question I have to ask is that do you know who wrote those very words? Is that the words that I just read are those of a German Lutheran pastor and professor, one who found himself living and ministering in the midst of the 1930s and 40s in Germany, that if you don't remember, there was a couple things going on in Germany at those times that he found himself standing again and again against Hitler and the Nazis and against all that they stood for. And throughout those 30s, as he found himself serving in that confessing church, the one who stood in that very way against the Nazis, and as he began to form that underground seminary and everything else, is that he found himself again and again with a target on his back. And so shortly before the war began is that by the very pressure of friends and by great efforts by many is that this man found himself finally being called out of Germany and brought to New York City itself with a prime professorship set for him 
there. That he was there in New York for just two weeks. That after all of the effort, after all of the pleads, after all of the things that his friends continued to press him on, that you cannot go back. After just two weeks of being here, after a long sea journey, he began his way back. That as he wrote to a friend, he wrote these words that I have come to the conclusion that I must live through this difficult period in our national history along with the people of Germany, that I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. That Christians in Germany will either have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the very defeat of their own nation in order that a future Christian civilization may survive, or else they must will the victory of their nation and thereby destroy our civilization and any true Christianity whatsoever. It cost him to make this decision, that he was free, he was clear, that he found himself in a place of comfort, a place where he could experience and enjoy relative peace, and yet he could not have it. That following Christ comes with a cost. And this man who went back to Germany found himself bearing that cross. That though he did much work for the church, for those, though he found himself in the midst of working among those who worked against Hitler and his very henchmen, is that he found himself imprisoned and he found himself there in those waning days of that war. Just one month before that very surrender would be declared. Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed and he bore the cost of his discipleship. That it was not a cheap cross for him. That why should we expect it to be a cheap cross for us? That when we look at the very Lord, the one who is there, the one who has given himself fully and completely for our good, that what does he say to Peter today? You have on your mind the things of man, not the things of God. Jesus has a question for us. Will you follow me, that if so, there will be a cross to bear, but there will be eventually that very crown of glory to wear, that our Lord reminds us of that very fact that discipleship is that very thing. It, there is a price to pay. 
I mean, is it worth it? That is what Jesus asks us today, is that He begins to ask that question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And the fact is, is that there are too many people who have sold their soul for far less than all of the things that the world could give that Jesus invites us today to follow Him, to follow Him in those hard paths, in those difficult places, in the midst of that life that He promises, that He will be there with us through it all, that He will guide and lead, and He will be the one who supports and strengthens. He will be the one who will bear our very sin. But Jesus says it will not be easy that if we are looking for cheap and easy crosses, we are looking in the wrong place. But I might ask this question, what kind of shape are you in lately? Now, I'm not asking like physical fitness. I don't want to answer that either. (laughs) So, I'm asking that question of what kind of shape are you in? Are you in that kind of circular shape or in one that is a little bit more cruciform. See, Martin Luther found himself once describing the natural state of mankind in this way, that it is easy to sense how we seek and love ourselves, how we are constantly bent in and curved in upon ourselves. If it is not in what we do, it is at least seen all of what we are disposed to do. And Luther saw that so many of us, because of sin and that natural sinful inclination, that we live our lives constantly curved in upon ourselves, bent in upon all of those things that cycle again and again, that everything comes back to that unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. That we live lives too often search simply for what we might have. But when Christ comes and invites us to take up our cross and follow Him, He invites us not to that circular, bent-in life, but one that is cruciform in shape that we might be those that lift and look as that very cross lifts our eyes to the very heavens and points to the very skies, the very source of our strength and our grace. For it is only as we lift our eyes to the heavens and look to the Lord from whom our help comes from, that we can hope to be transformed and changed, to be turned inside out, that we may not look at ourselves, that as we look to Him and His cross, that we can begin to look out towards others, to welcome in our neighbors, to love those who are near and dear and those who are far off, that we may be changed forever by that very invitation of Christ that as we look up for full forgiveness and grace and freedom, 
The fact is, is that we continue to look out to our neighbor that we may love and care for our spouse, our children, our parents, our friends, our fellow church members, that we may serve them. For how did Paul put it? (laughs) That I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, and this life that I now live In this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Or as he goes on later in Galatians to say, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me. That Paul even has the audacity to say to us in the epistle reading today from Romans, as He not only begins with those words that we find ourselves now standing in access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, there will be a day of glory. There will be that parade when Christ returns and makes all things new. But what about now? Paul says not only do we rejoice in that glory that is to come, that Paul says that we rejoice in our sufferings. I don't know about you. I'm not always saying that when suffering comes, I'm like, yes, great. It's going to be awesome. No, what do we hear Paul saying? We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because of the cross. We see that God can turn what is bad for our good. That what can He even use these sufferings for? That suffering can produce endurance, and endurance can produce character, and character can produce hope. Hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through that Holy Spirit. For while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. This is the very promise that R gives. Faith is looking to that Lord. Faith is looking to Him who bore His cross for us. Faith is looking not for cheap grace and cheap crosses, but looking to that costly grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we look to Him not to the trials, not to the sufferings, not to the problems and pains, but may we look to Him who paid the ultimate price to make us His own. And I dare to venture to guess that we will find that the value and the profit is far greater than we can imagine. May our God grant to you this day and every day that peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.